brought to you by Penguin. There are other pandemics coming, and if we don't do anything about it, they'll come and they'll be worse than this one. Hello, I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and this is the weekly Penguin podcast where we speak to esteemed authors and artists about their work and how they came to create that work. My guest today is a famed scholar who is known for his groundbreaking contributions to the field of linguistics. In a poll conducted in 2005, he was voted the world's top public intellectual and is known for his critiques of political systems. He's written over 100 books on topics such as linguistics, war, politics, and mass media. Well, today, he's here to talk about just one of his books, Optimism Over Despair. Published in 2017, it's just about to come out as an audiobook. My guest is talking down the line from Arizona, so as ever, please forgive any bumps or glitches or, well, he has a pet dog, so who knows what uh, his pet dog will do. And also, email, pings, that could be a thing, as we record from our homes. It's Noam Chomsky. Hello, sir. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Very pleased to be with you. Now, I know this is a podcast, so people can't see it, but may I just commend you on your quite incredible facial hair? It's kind of an accident, but <laughs> I don't think you want to know the details. I remember when I was in first grade, I played Moses in a school play. And I've always wanted to go back to that, but I can't find the right kind of sheet. That's the trouble. <laughs> it's not a lockdown beard then. This predates the pandemic, clearly. Yeah. Let's talk about your book, Optimism Over Despair, which is, of course, very fitting for our times. Is being an optimist becoming an increasingly difficult thing to be? I don't really think so. I mean, if you think about it, we have two choices. Uh, we can uh, decide to be pessimistic. Uh, it's all over. Nothing we can do. And thereby, we will help ensure that the worst comes about. Or we can recognize that there are opportunities. There certainly are. Uh, we can try to grasp them. And uh, maybe the world will be a better place. It's really not much of a choice. It's obvious which to pick. Is there a difference between optimism and idealism? Yeah, I think so. We can be optimistic about making small changes that will improve the world will improve lives. Uh, idealism indicates some further commitment and goal, which I think it makes sense to have, but it's uh, independent of our willingness just to grasp the opportunities that exist. They do exist uh, and pursue them as best we can. I believe I'm right saying that you read four or five newspapers a day. Do you find that doing that reinforces the orthodoxies or helps to challenge your own orthodoxies? I skim four or five newspapers a day. It doesn't take that long to read a newspaper. Most of it won't bother no. <laughs> But you look for the things that matter, which very often are the last paragraph of a front page story. 
I've learned over the years that a good reporter will, I don't know if this is done consciously, this is just my impression from reading. The first paragraph is for the headline writers. And they'll put something there. And towards the end, you see things that the headline writer wouldn't like and the editor wouldn't like. And very often there are interesting things. Whether this is conscious or intuitive or whatever it is, I don't know. But I think that's the way to read the newspaper. It doesn't take long. So uh, does it change the way I think? Of course, I learn from it. So uh, the fact that mainly young people, even older people, have stopped reading news and journals is pretty serious, I think. You don't understand the world that way. You read anything, read me, read anybody else. You have to understand that it's coming from a point of view. Everyone has a perspective, okay? If you're honest, you make your perspective clear. And when you read something, no matter what it is, you have to take it into account. Uh, maybe you have to compensate for it. You have to ask uh, what's being left out, uh, what's being interpreted in a, in a special way reflecting the person's perspective. It's not easy for anybody to do with a little attention, and a little care, but it does take some work and effort. Given what's happening at the moment with COVID-19, what do you think will happen to the political structures how many do you think will survive? Political and economic structures. In the United States, there's basically one party, the business party, two factions. One of them is extreme, the Republican Party. But by now, they are so committed to private wealth and corporate power that nothing else can even cross their minds. Now, that's why uh, the fossil fuel companies are pleading with the government for even further subsidies. That's why they're being granted it by the government. That's why even mild environmental regulations are being torn to shreds. That's why uh, people are being threatened by the party that uh, if an employer requests that they go back to work, even if the circumstances are dangerous and they refuse, they lose their unemployment insurance, means they lose their health insurance this particularly savage form of capitalism. People don't have health insurance and on and on. So they're at work relentlessly. They never stop. You take a look at the Trump administration. It's a little hard to penetrate the chaos and the absurdities and the ranting and so on. But if you look closely, there is a kind of geopolitical strategy lying behind it. It's to construct an international organization of the harshest, most reactionary states in the world, run by the White House, of course. It includes uh, people like Bolsonaro in Brazil, Trump's clone who's destroying Brazil. In the Middle East, it includes every brutal dictator. Uh, Al-Sisi's Egypt, the worst dictatorship Egypt's ever had, includes Israel, which is right at the center of it now, drifting so far to the right, you need a telescope to find it. Uh, going farther east, of course, includes uh, Modi's India. Uh, Modi is working hard to destroy the last remnants of Indian secular democracy, crushing Kashmir, 
in Europe uh, will include people like uh, Orban in Hungary, who is working to turn it into a dictatorship. Uh, in Italy, there the North, what was the Northern League, people like uh, Salvini. Now that's being forged before our eyes. Now the question is whether other forces will mobilize and act. There's actually a, an international counterpart that's uh, just coming into view and how it, how it eventuates will make a big difference. In a couple of days, there's going to be the first meeting of a counterforce, Progressive International. It was initiated a little while ago by Bernie Sanders in the United States, by uh, Yanis Varoufakis, fine economist, uh, the, who organized uh, the DM25 movement, a Europe-wide movement, which is seeking to salvage what is valuable in the European Union and to overcome its deep, serious flaws. You take a look at the level of states, and one of them looks overwhelmingly powerful. Take a look at the level of people, quite a different picture. And that's the hope for optimism. You're not going to get headlines in the press about this, but it's a very important development and it reflects things that are happening locally all over the place. So the rough sketch is much more nuanced and complex. But uh, basically, there's a, a kind of a international class war going on. And the question is, who wins? But how known will a recession that could be on a par with what happened in the 1920s scupper such plans and such optimism? I mean, you are of the age where you will have memories, distant memories of what happened in the 1930s. Those are my childhood memories. There was a global depression, very serious. Some countries turned to fascism. Okay. We got Hitler. That was one way out. Sorry, but my dog wants to get into the act. All oh, right. Oh, I was wondering whether it was my dog. I've got a 10-week-old puppy. So it's your dog. Okay, cool. Okay. Well, that was one way out. Now, the other way out was the New Deal and similar things elsewhere. Revolution in American life. I remember it very well. My family was, was all first-generation immigrants, mostly working class, unemployed, very hopeful. These were two different ways out of the Great Depression. They tell us something. Not the same world as then, of course, but there are similarities. So we have two ways now, and they're being worked on. Those are the two approaches that I described. The ultra-right wing is not fascism, it's not Nazis, but has many of those characteristics. But we do have these alternatives, something like that. And you can go either way. Countries went different ways in the 1930s and go different ways now. It's up to the people. They have the power if they want to use it. Do you feel then that essentially totalitarianism as a reaction to a depression is bad for business. Therefore, if business runs America, then business will not allow that to happen. Because of course, as you know, big business in Germany very much found a way to work within fascism. Oh, yeah. Now, Hitler controlled business, 
but he made sure that they were enriched and powerful. So they went along with Hitler, as did a good part of American business and British business up until the war broke out. In fact, it even continued in some ways after the war with American business. So for the business world, this wasn't a bad thing. In fact, uh, Mussolini in particular, you know, didn't have all of the hideous excrescences of Hitler bad enough, but he was very much supported by the business world. So for example, uh, Forbes magazine, major business journal in the country in 1932, 10 years of fascism in Italy with all of its brutal, vicious repression, had a uh, cover story. The title of the cover story was The Wops Are Unwopping Themselves. So pure racism, but finally those wops are getting it right with fascism. Okay. That's the major business journal in the United States. And it continued through the 30s. No, in your decades of, of uh, in academia, research, and publishing, when was the last time you recognized that you'd got something wrong? Well, I was slow on getting deeply involved in the climate crisis. In the early 1970s, I remember one day, two friends of mine happened to contact me. One of them was the head of the earth sciences program at Harvard. One of them was the head of the of meteorology at MIT. Independently, they just both happened to contact me. And both of them said, look, something really ugly is happening. We're seeing the first signs of it, of a very severe uh, environmental crisis. That was the time to get seriously involved. Some people did. I didn't. I waited. Why didn't you? Well, at the time, I was so utterly immersed in anti-war activity that almost nothing else came to mind. I want to head towards the end of the book where you're asked a series of questions about human nature. Let's take a listen to that now. C.J. Polycraniu. Many maintain the view that, as humans, we have a propensity for aggression and violence, which in actuality explains the rise of oppressive and repressive institutions that have defined much of human civilization throughout the world. How do you respond to this dark view of human nature? Noam Chomsky Since oppression and repression exist, they are reflections of human nature. The same is true of sympathy, solidarity, kindness, and concern for others. And for some great figures like Adam Smith, these were the essential properties of humans. The task for social policy is to design the ways we live and the institutional and cultural structure of our lives so as to favor the benign and to suppress the harsh and destructive aspects of our fundamental nature. That was the audiobook of Optimism Over Despair with C.J. Polychronio and my guest, Noam Chomsky.
It's available to buy and download on the 4th of June. There's a link in the program notes of this episode. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast. Please let us know what you think. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. These times that we are living through and bearing in mind, of course, that Optimism Over Despair came out three years ago, what would you change about this book, knowing what you know now, seeing what you see now? These are, and people keep talking about them as unprecedented times. What would you change about these conversations now? What would you add to this book? Cronus and I have had further interviews. In fact, we have a book coming out along with Bob Pollan, economist at, at uh, UMass, who's done some of the most important work on uh, ways out of the uh, environmental crisis, uh, uh, which uh, talks about more recent events. So I would, if I were up to dating it now, I'd certainly put in the uh, pandemic. And there were not just the details of what's happening and the way it's being treated. There are other pandemics coming. And if we don't do anything about it, they'll come and they'll be worse than this one because they'll be exacerbated by global warming. So right now, we make a decision. Are we going to prevent the future ones? Are we going to let them come? That's a decision to be made right now. Scientists know how to prepare for it. They're telling us, explaining. In fact, we can ask ourselves, why did this pandemic come about? In 2003, after the SARS epidemic of coronavirus, it was well understood that another one was going to come. And it was understood how to do something about it. Nothing was done. Why? Two things. One, straight capitalist logic. The drug companies have the resources. They got profits coming out of their ears, but they follow capitalist logic. There's no profit in expending resources to prepare for a catastrophe a couple of years from now. So they're out. Then comes the neoliberal plague. Why doesn't the government step in? It can. National Institute of Health has resources. Uh, government can do all sorts of things. And now we go back to Ronald Reagan's inaugural speech, uh, probably handed to him by some corporate sponsors. Uh, his sunny smile, he says, uh, government is the problem, not the solution. What does that mean? Translated into English, that means let's take a decision-making an initiative away from the government, which is somewhat accountable to the population. And let's put it into the hands of completely unaccountable private tyrannies. That's what a corporation is. And meanwhile, they will listen to Milton Friedman, the economic guru of the administration, who tells them your sole responsibility, the one thing you must do, you must maximize profit for your shareholders, your managers, and your CEO. Do anything else and the foundations of civilization collapse. It's called libertarianism in the United States, kind of an odd name. So we've got two hammer blues, capitalist logic, neoliberalism, which says you can't do anything about it. Okay, you get a pandemic. 
Actually, Obama made a few steps to try to do something, but they were beaten back by the same logic. As soon as Trump came in, the game was over. Defund everything, cancel all the programs, and leave us uniquely vulnerable. On January 10th, World Health Organization distributed the virologists, scientists all over the world. Some countries responded, others waited, didn't pay much attention, and finally started to act. Way at the bottom of the barrel is the United States. Scientists, US intelligence couldn't break through to the White House. So it wasn't until March, after two months of uh, a pandemic raging. The challenge was that people, and not just in the Trump administration, globally began to ask the question, is the cure going to kill more people than the pandemic itself? And to balance up the hit on the economy and what would do to American jobs. I mean, 30 million Americans signed up for unemployment benefit. And uh, I saw a uh, a piece of research the other day that said in one American county, a 1% rise in unemployment leads to a 20% rise in child neglect and deprivation. So that's a balancing act that an, uh, that an economy has and that a government has to seriously look at, whether the cure is worse than the pandemic well, remember itself. Remember that the, the cure you're talking about is specific to the United States, where there's no universal health care, there's no guaranteed child care, there's no social support, uh, there's no unemployment insurance. Uh, but there's $3 trillion extra just gone yeah, into- most of it going to, trying to banks to hand out to big corporations under the supervision of Mnuchin, who will of course take care of it. So yes, the cure here will be uniquely painful because of deep failures of the socioeconomic system made much harsher because of in the neoliberal period. Now, so take hospitals, for example. The hospitals have been run during the past decades on a business model. What's a business model? No spare capacity, not an extra bid. It's not so great for the norm either, as I and others can testify, but at least it sort of works. Anything goes wrong, it's a catastrophe. That's a socioeconomic decision doesn't have to be made. There are other countries that didn't make it. Now take Germany, also a sort of neoliberal country, but not like us. Uh, they have spare capacity, spare diagnostic capacity. They manage to get it under control. They have a relative low death rate. These are choices in the political system. It's like the depression. You could have got Nazism. You could have got the New Deal. Depend on what on how the public reacted. You look into the details, you see that. In the United States, the leading force was the revived labor movement. It had been crushed in the 20s, came back roaring in the 30s, made a huge difference. They were in the forefront of what led to the New Deal. Can happen again. So that's the kind of country we are. We have an educated elite, which is highly conformist, uh, a lot of young people, a lot of activists. Then there's a general population which has mixed feelings. They can be reached, uh, often are. And uh, now we're back to optimism or despair. Optimism says, let's try. 
Noam Chomsky, it has been an absolute pleasure. You hear this a lot, but I could have spent hours talking to you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Noam. Pleasure. And we have a bonus edition coming after this episode. Penguin Perspectives is a collection of essays written by Penguin authors as a direct response to the COVID-19 crisis. We'll be sharing readings of these essays with you in a bonus episode of the podcast. The third instalment to Jam Kurtz's masterpiece, The Death of Jesus, continues the themes of unanswered questions and a world without memory. We once again follow David as he makes his way through life, but like him... We're unsure where it will all end. What does it mean to be an orphan? Does it simply mean that you are without visible parents? No. To be an orphan, at the deepest level, is to be alone in the world. So, in a sense, we are all orphans, for we are all, at the deepest level, alone in the world. As I say to the young people in my charge, there is nothing to be ashamed of in living in an orphanage, for an orphanage is a microcosm of society. The new novel by the Nobel and Booker-winning author, the audiobook edition of The Death of Jesus, is available to download now.